before we begin, a disclaimer, this podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for any investment decision. Nothing you hear is an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any security. The securities discussed on this podcast may be owned by persons being interviewed. Before making any investment decision, please consult an investment advisor. You might hear a little bit of construction in the background. All right. I, um, right now I'm home alone, but if Jess comes home, I'm, I'm going to probably just get up and move into the bedroom. So. Um. All right, cool. Well, um, I'll just kick things off. I'm here with Aaron from Marion Road Capital, as usual. Today we have a special guest, Andrew Walker. Andrew is a portfolio manager at Rangeley Capital. He's also the author of one of my favorite investing blogs, yet another valueblog.com, where he writes about all kinds of different companies. His, his work is always good, but he's especially smart when it comes to media, cable, the Liberty Complex. So you should definitely go check, check out the blog. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Andrew, welcome to the show. No, hey, thanks for having me. Uh, it's good to do try to at this podcast. Uh, I love the podcast. I love Scuttle Blurb. So happy to be on here. Hopefully it'll be a fun hour. Okay, cool. So I feel that any conversation about this topic has to start with Netflix. I'll just briefly summarize what makes Netflix so formidable in this space. Stuff that most of us know at this point. So Netflix has a huge subscriber base and that benefits the company in a few ways. First, the cost of content and spread out among more users. And second, any given show that Netflix buys or produces is more likely to find an audience on Netflix than it is anywhere else because of not only the sheer number of subscribers, but also Netflix's ability to funnel that show to a subset of viewers who are uh, most likely to enjoy it. So a show that might flop somewhere else could find a healthy audience and be a churn reducer for that audience on Netflix. What this means is that Netflix can spend outspend competitors on content because it has the audience, the technology, the recommendation engine to earn better returns on that spend. More content in turn draws in more users and better retains existing users and round and round we go. So scale begets scale. Uh, this has obviously had huge implications across media over the years. So I'll just open it up with a general question here. How are other players in the media ecosystem, the networks, the content providers, the broadcasters adapting to this situation? How are they finding ways to stay relevant or is Netflix's influence overstated in certain cases? Yeah, I, I guess I'll start. I mean, I think at this point, a lot of them are trying to copy Netflix, right? So CBS, uh, maybe four years, five years ago, re released CBS All Access. You've got Disney Plus coming out. Uh, I don't think Fox hasn't done anything, but it, who knows what's Fox going to happen. NBC is going to release an ad-supported service in the next year or so. So all of them are trying to go direct to consumer. I think there's a lot interesting about that. One of the things is Netflix, as you said, scale begets scale. Netflix spends $20 billion per year on content, and all of these networks, they're, you know, CBS All Access is taking their original CBS All Access show levels from four shows to eight shows. And obviously, you get all the other CBS stuff, but it's like, is that really enough when Netflix is putting up maybe two new shows a day on, uh, on the service? I'm not sure, but it's clear that all of them have realized, hey, the legacy bundle 
we can milk it while it's still there, but we need to have a we need to have something else that looks kind of like Netflix going forward. Now, do you think that CBS, Viacom, NBC are looking at DTC as another channel tactic to pull incremental revenue or as a full-on strategy? Because it seems like more of the former to me. They just don't seem to have the resources and the opportunity costs uh, just seem too great to go full-on streaming. They don't seem differentiated enough. Uh, sports might be you know, too valuable in, in a linear bundle. You know, I think it's still tough. To, I think it's still a little too early to say. I think all of them have come to the realization if you're not doing something DTC, you're going to die. You know, I was reading the CBS Q1 call and most of their subs come from like Amazon, Hulu, all these other types. It's not people actually signing up for CBS. It's someone signing up through a third party. And they're out here touting like, hey, we're going to be one of the core products on Apple TV's students launch service. And that's going to be great for our sub members. It's like, hey, that's great, but you don't actually own the subs. Whereas Netflix has been pretty key on, they own the sub, you subscribe through them directly. I think you can do Netflix through like directly through Comcast or a couple of other services. But in general, people go and subscribe to Netflix. Whereas like a CBS is they're letting other people kind of control that consumer. So it's almost a channel in a different form. The other thing is a lot of these guys, as you're saying, like, look, CBS All Access, they're going from four shows to eight shows and they're not willing to go all in because I don't know if you read the the piece on Disney uh, getting ready to launch Disney Plus and it took, they did it like two years after they first started thinking about it because all of their executive compensation is tied to earnings per share targets, free cash flow targets. And if you're launching DTC, and Netflix is going to put $20 billion into content, you're going to burn cash flow like crazy to, to scale up that subscriber base. And I'm not sure if these executives who are in many cases at these channels are, you know, they're professional managers. They're not entrepreneurs. They're not really incentivized to, to miss their bonus targets to build out a DTC product, even if it's incredibly valuable. Maybe just to expand on that first point that you're making just on how the product stacks up relative to, to Netflix. I mean, it definitely seems like the traditional networks are are coming out with their you know over the top platform more as just a distribution method, whereas it's really just the same. It's the same product whether you're accessing it linearly or through the internet. Whereas like the Netflix product that you get is differentiated in that um, there's just so much more variety and choice that comes with it. Uh, you know, Dave, you were saying they can kind of cater to different market segments. CBS kind of has a certain age and demographic that they cater to. And um, they're unlikely to kind of deviate from that. Yeah, it's funny. The acting CEO of CBS recently once said something to the effect of when someone cancels a subscription, we don't call that churn. We call it pausing, meaning people who cancel CBS All Access or Showtime will come back if and when CBS puts out new original content. And it seems to me that's not really the posture you want to have when you really want to make SVOD a strategy and not just a channel tactic. You don't want to just be in the hits business. You want to be the you know virtual living room where people live. And Andrew, I thought you made a good point that you know when people talk about the advantages that Netflix has in streaming, they'll often refer to the technology and content and user base. But there's also a cultural aspect to consider that these networks have warring agendas and profit motives and a shareholder base that may not be receptive to the short-term losses that have to be incurred in order to make a streaming strategy viable. Yeah, and it's interesting, especially like the ones, you look at the big networks, like I think the the kind of 
smaller cable channels are in a lot more trouble than the lar- than the broadcasters. You know, like what is Bravo or USA Network, which you know traditionally they were Modern Family reruns or SVU reruns. Like, what are they when you can just go binge all that? That's a much tougher question. But most of those guys are owned by bigger things like CBS and Fox. They're they're owned by controlling shareholders who should be able to take much longer term views, right? The Murdochs still own Fox. Sherry Redstone controls CBS, but from the management perspective, it just doesn't seem like they're willing to forego this revenue. Like even CBS, you read their calls, they're cutting their buybacks to invest in uh, to invest in all access, but their dividend is paramount. Their investment grade rating is paramount. You know, it, it, all of that, it's not terrible to want to be investment grade, but paying a dividend while you're trying to grow this huge all access service where you look at Netflix has done it and turned it into a $160 billion valuation. It's, it it kind of seems silly to be so wedded to this dividend when you could be reinvesting that into trying to gain the scale you need to really survive and thrive long term. At, at the risk of having like hindsight bias, I mean, I think it is kind of important to to note that, you know, these supposedly longer term or what should be longer term investors were for, for, for many years just benefiting from milking that syndication budget or a bucket. And ultimately, it kind of like sowed the seeds of their own destruction. I think it's also interesting, like from an investor standpoint, obviously Netflix is a very hot topic these days. But, you know, if you go back a few years, you know, the, stock, the stock has obviously had like a tremendous run, but there's still a lot of uncertainty on whether, you know, ultimately this would be a profitable endeavor. And so you, you kind of see it from both angles. Yeah, there's sort of a leap of faith that you have to make. Viacom seems to be one of the worst culprits or victims here, depending on how you see it. Their networks, um, MTV, Comedy Central, Nickelodeon, appealed to a younger demo, and they've got almost all that stuff on traditional linear. It's just a really tough intersection. A few years ago, they stopped bulk licensing a lot of their content to the SVODs, and now they're putting a bunch of it on uh, linear ad-supported streaming. They're still reserving the newest content for traditional MVPDs. It seems like they've got other problems here considering the quality of their content, which makes a full-on streaming effort hard to pull off. Yeah, I, I think the thing with Viacom, so they have all those problems you just mentioned, which are many, especially you look at something like Nickelodeon and Disney has this with Disney Channel, but you know it's buried within Disney, so it's not that big a deal. But something like Nickelodeon, are kids really gonna watch, are kids really waiting to watch the cable channel or are they just going onto YouTube? Are they going onto Netflix? They're not getting advertising. They get exactly what they want when it wants it. Like you look at something like that and it is just in so much trouble. But you know, with Viacom, that's controlled by Redstone as well. and. I think the natural end game for them is within the next couple of months, they're probably going to be merging back with CBS to try to get the scale they kind of need to invest into a streaming platform. Mm, yeah, interesting. And what do you think about these integrated content distribution players like Comcast NBC or AT&T Time Warner? They have tons of content, but also a direct relationship with the consumer. There's data, there's bundling opportunities. How do you think they're going to approach streaming and do you do you think that they have a better shot at this than uh, than some of the pure play networks? Not really. Like, look, Com- Comcast bought NBC in two thousand nine, and I think it's been a really nice purchase. Part of that driven by the fact they bought it in two thousand nine. But they always claim like there's some synergies. If you can point me to the synergy between NBC and the cable business, a real clear example of synergy, I would be really interested in it. You look at eight. T buying Time Warner, like look at T-Mobile Netflix. T-Mobile's Netflix partnership has been really well. That's just a licensing deal, right? Like I don't think there's any synergies to actually owning that content and then actually owning the 
physical distribution. Maybe there's some from like your DTC just added onto your cable bundle, but Comcast does that with Netflix. Like I haven't really seen any synergies between owning content, which you think about Netflix. The great thing about Netflix is they're a global play, right? They make stuff in Germany and it becomes a hit here, or they make stuff here and they pipe it everywhere. If you're Comcast Cable, you you serve at most one third of the United States and you're buying a global platform play, like the synergies are just limited. It's too much size mismatch. So I'm going to say something, we should all do a shot afterwards, but what about like the flywheel? <laughs> you said it, you said the magic <laughs> word. Yeah. What about the flywheel with like with um, Comcast? It, you know, those kind of struck me as like trying to replicate the Disney model, which you know, has been very successful on kind of leveraging content through, you know, various products. And so, you know, with, I, I forget, did Comcast have theme parks before NBC? So Comcast, so Comcast bought NBCU. So NBC was NBC plus Universal, which is Universal Studios, the movie studio and everything. And I think right. there's absolutely something to be said. You look at the Disney model, right? Like they launched the Pirates of the Caribbean movie franchise from the Pirates of the Caribbean, from the Pirates of the Caribbean ride, or there's obviously synergies between they launch the big movies and then they can build parks, they can drive people to the parks, they can sell merchandise. There's synergies there. But what I'm talking about is like, there's not synergies between Comcast cable, which, you know, it's not even cable TV anymore. It's mainly broadband internet. There's not synergies between having that with NBC Universal. But I definitely think there's overall synergies to having like the theme parks. And one of the interesting things I put in the notes I sent you guys like, Uh, Right now, studios, movie studios are forbidden from owning movie theaters. And, you know, if you think there's big synergies, not huge synergies, but there's synergies between like having this flywheel longer term, I wonder if the play like almost in a clicks to bricks thing, how like Bonobos or Warby Parker, they start online only and then they open retail stores. I wonder if longer term, the play is like a Disney goes out and buys movie theaters. So they, they have a DTC, like they have a physical presence in most major markets that they own, they control. You know, if you think about them buying AMC, AMC has like 20 million moviegoers on their AMC movie ticket list and a million moviegoers subscribe to their all access products. Like, it seems like there'd be a lot of synergies between Disney marketing to those people owning that consumer relationship in that way. That's more on the movie studio side, but that's an interesting piece. Yeah, no, absolutely. But do you think that's like feasible from a regulatory standpoint? There's reasons that you're not allowed to own studios and and theaters. I mean, a lot of it just comes to like, you know, you can easily block out your competitors, which... I think those are really legacy. So I think uh, I think it's like the Paramount decision that was made in the 1950s. Like, if you look at the movie business today, I think it's hard to argue that if Disney owned AMC theaters, it would be anti-competitive because they wouldn't show anyone else's movies in there. Like, if you're NBC, you can go to Regal, you can go to Cinemark, you can go to Net like Netflix's movies do just fine, and they don't even put them into theaters. So I think that's a pretty legacy piece of regulation that will get overturned at some point. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, theaters would certainly seem to be consistent with Disney's larger strategy. They have all sorts of touch points with the consumer, uh, cruises, theme parks, merchandise, and as many others have pointed out, they're thinking about the Disney experience as a whole, getting close to the consumer, um, understanding who your customer is, is in, one of, in one of these domains, benefits, delivers benefits elsewhere. So you can see a gigantic bundling opportunity with Disney and all the other various properties that they have. I guess one thing that comes to mind is now that Disney is moving more aggressively towards direct-to-consumer, ESPN seems like a bit of a stranded asset inside Disney. Not really sure the role it plays with the other parts of Disney now that those parts are no longer part of the cable bundle. And Dave, that's an interesting question. I'll just add on to that question. I think that's interesting. Um, 
with you saw you know Sinclair buying um, the regional sports networks. And so, Aaron, I, I was going to say the exact same thing. You, you look at Sinclair buying, and their stock is up. <laughs> I mean, good <laughs> job. It, it, it is way up in the past couple of days buying RSNs. But you know, they bought, I think they bought the RSNs at like six six times EBITDA. And obviously, RSNs are different than ESPN, but it was a very low multiple. And you think about ESPN in that context. Uh, I, I'm not sure. You know, I, I think the problem with ESPN is ESPN. They, if you're ESPN, you need the NBA, you need the NFL. If you don't have them, I, I think you're in a lot of trouble. And longer term, I think the uh, I, I think the leagues suck out all the economic value for ESPN, and it's tough to see them ever getting. I, I'm not saying it's impossible. But I, I don't know if there's like a scale play there because if they don't pay top dollar. I think a Facebook would, I think an Amazon Prime would, you know, obviously CBS, Fox, all these guys would pay top dollar. So there's so many bidders and there's only a couple seats on that. I, I don't, I think longer term, it's going to be really tough to keep building a lot of economic profit off of uh, sports. Yeah, that's the thing. Sports will always find a way to extract value, even if the medium shifts. And given the importance of sports to the traditional cable bundle, it seems to me more likely than not that there will be an acceleration in cord cutting, especially for satellite companies who can't bundle broadband because there's a self-fulfilling dynamic at play here where the rights to major games come available over the next four years. You'll have more players bidding for sports rights. The Mm -hmm. MVPDs, even if they maintain those rights, will do so at a higher cost, which they'll then have to pass on to their subscribers, making the price to value proposition of a full bundle less and less appealing driving more subscriber losses and so on well dave i mean yeah like i think on, on that point you know you were saying before that um you know sports will extract value and, and i think that's definitely that's definitely true um but yeah i mean for a long time with you know in the cable bundle you had a lot of people who weren't watching espn paying what was it and you probably know it's like eight, eight bucks a month or something you pay about eight dollars a month for espn right now right yeah so for someone who doesn't watch that i mean as as these um, alternative platforms become more available and more appealing, you know that's definitely a risk to them. I think when you look at, when you look at Fox, the the new Fox post Disney sale, it's interesting that Netflix, when new Fox was announced, what their strategy was, their strategy is live news and sports. And Netflix said this is the perfect way to compete with us. And if you take this to kind of the logical extreme, the old cable bundle will be, it's going to be for people who want news and sports, and it's going to have ESPN, it's going to have your CBS, your Fox, anything that's got sports, and all the all the price that you charge will pretty much go just to sports, because if you don't want sports, and you subscribe to the legacy cable bundle, you know, you pay $8 per month for ESPN, you're going to pay $7 a month for whatever the RSN is, you're going to pay, you know, $10 a month for all the major broadcasters, why not just go subscribe to Hulu, and for $11 per month, all the broadcasters plus a bunch of other uh, a bunch of other content, and you can watch it on demand whenever you want, and you'll pay way less. So I think Legacy Bundle is people who need sports and news and live, and then everything else goes to uh, SVOD, and you get kind of this reverse cycle where if you're a non-sports person and you leave the Legacy Bundle, the price for everyone else goes up, which creates the cycle where if you don't care about sports and news, you exit quicker because the prices go up quicker. Yeah. Now if that's the case and the traditional cable bundle just becomes about news and sports would it make sense then for espn to be bundled with the part of fox that was not acquired by disney 
So combining news and sports into this one bundle and having some semblance of leverage with the distributors. You know, that's interesting. I, I don't think so. From, from just like New Fox perspective, I don't think they'd be interested just because they were offered these RSNs. They knew the RSNs better than anyone else. And they said, we don't want to buy, buy the RSNs. Now, RSNs are different than ESPN. ESPN is national sports, whereas RSNs are local sports. But, you know, if I'm Fox, why go buy ESPN when I could just bid on all of ESPN's uh, sports rights when they come up and try to build them that way? And I can also supplement ESPN with, you know, I've got all my my news programming, which costs almost nothing, and I can supplement the two. So I, I think it makes sense in the abstract. I'm not sure if Old Fox is a buyer. And at the same time, Disney has a, ABC and ESPN, so they can kind of recreate enter, any synergies between the two of those. Gotcha. Yeah. And when you think about ESPN Plus, it sounds like Disney's management for now sees this as a complimentary service to ESPN. But yeah. You think that changes at some point and it becomes more all-encompassing? I think the interesting thing, I think they're building it out. Uh, you know, they've got the UFC rights. I think the interesting thing is, do they go for NBA League Pass or do they go for uh, NFL Sunday Ticket or something at some point? I, I think that's the natural play for uh, for ESPN Plus, right? You get all the games and you put them on there and you can stream them. And it's almost like the Netflix of sports. I think that would be the natural play. And all those rights are coming up in the near future. The only thing is, if you look at NFL Sunday Ticket, for example, right now, Dish, Dish owns it. And I, I think they're absolutely going to lose it. But they kept it five years ago, despite Google bid more than them for it. So is ESPN going to be able to outbid Google if YouTube TV wants it or Amazon if Amazon Prime wants it? I, I, I think that's an open question. And uh, again, they're going to have to pay through the nose for that. And right now, ESPN Plus is like $6 a month, I think. If you get NFL Sunday ticket, which I think Dish sells as like a two or three hundred dollars per year add-on, they're probably gonna have to take the price of that way, way up. Kind of related to a prior podcast, we were talking about just how distribution is so much more important than content. I mean, I think you've seen that with Netflix, where they don't really need to spend that much money um, to make a movie, and then they, you know, just given their scale that they have now, they can monetize it in throughout the United States, plus all the other GIs that they're in, whereas you know, bidding on, let's say, NFL rights, first of all, you're, you're going to be paying a lot more because, you know, there's scarce capacity of, of NFL games. But then also, it's harder to say that you're going to be able to monetize that by selling it to someone in, you know, in Asia or something. Do either of you guys think that Netflix eventually becomes a bidder for sports rights? You know, I used to think they would, but I, I, I no longer think they do. I think they want to have everything on their service be somewhat evergreen. I've seen, I think it was... I think it was their CEO, but maybe it was their C their chief uh, content officer say like, hey, we think longer term, all economic value for sports is extracted by the league. And if it's not, the leagues will eventually go direct and extract all the economic value that way. So I, I think they, they know what they want to be. They want to be when you want when you want to be entertained, we'll do it except for sports. I, I think that's what it wants. And as you were saying, a lot of sports isn't global. So I think they want things that can be pretty easily global. Yeah, I mean, I think traditional linear TV on Netflix might be jumping the gun, but I don't see a good reason why Netflix would not have an ad support tier at some point. Hulu's ad support tier is its most profitable, I heard recently. Um, Roku says that the number one question they get on Roku.com is, what can I get for free on Roku? <laughs> so there's clearly a huge audience of people who will endure ads for free TV. 
Um, now it won't look the same as in traditional TV. The ad loads will be lower. The ads will be served programmatically. But I don't see why Netflix wouldn't price discriminate, so to speak, and expand their user base this way to keep the flywheel going. Um, and so I can see this happening sometime in the next five years. Yeah, I mean, isn't Disney doing that now with Disney Plus where you have kind of no ads and then like partial partial supported and... Hulu does it, uh, obviously Disney Plus is in launch, but Hulu does it and CBS All Access does it as well. So it's definitely a model that a lot of a lot of them have explored. And uh, I think at some point they have to do advertising, right? Like if, you're, if your thing is we need the biggest base to have the most scale possible, at some point there's a certain percentage of people who aren't going to pay for, who just don't want to pay. And if you want them and if you want that scale, you're going to have to do do advertising or else you'll be at a disadvantage. And, you know, I don't think it's coincidence that every Internet business model in history has pretty much at some point introduced an advertising component. And I'd be surprised if Netflix was the only one that never did that. And that opens up a lot of interesting dialogue on the future of connected TV. And this is a little yeah. bit of a tangent, but I was thinking about Trade Desk recently. On balance, I like them, but I think my major concern is Walled Gardens developing in connected TV advertising as they have on the web, especially if Netflix gets into the ad support into ad support content, which I think they will. Jeff Green, uh, Trade Desk's uh, CEO, has addressed this point by saying that, well, the cable bundle is breaking up into all these thinner distribution channels, but it seems to me the key isn't how fragmented the media landscape is. It's who accounts for the disproportionate amount of consumer attention because that's where the ad dollars will go. The web is, in theory, fragmented, but that hasn't stopped Google and Facebook from claiming two-thirds of digital ad dollars. Yeah, I, I think the average Netflix user in the U.S. watches like it's two hours per day. You think about that and you're like, okay, uh, Netflix has, what, 25% of the U.S. population signed up or something? Who cares how many Who cares how many places there are to watch video? Like if you can put an advertisement on Netflix, you're you're going to be re- reaching a lot, of, uh, a lot of the U.S. on a pretty frequent basis. So I, I, I definitely. There, there's something to that and you know if it's not on netflix then if you combine it up netflix hulu all these other ones like if you can reach everyone through some of these video services then you're pretty much getting everyone at some point andrew correct me if i'm wrong but isn't isn't the um total or, or daily television watch is like six hours per day yeah yeah it's like six hours <laughs> that's crazy how do people watch six hours of tv a day i've never understood this i don't know man it, it takes effort <laughs> I think uh, Matthew Ball, who's one of the who's one of the best, if not the best, like kind of media analyst writers out there. I think he put it up, and I, I was wondering the same thing. But it includes people like you know, some people when they're cooking, they turn Netflix on, or oh, gotcha. So it's running in the background. Yeah. So it includes a lot of that, which you know, this is a different thing that I think we're all interested in. But you think about something like podcasting, which people people can listen to hours of podcasting per day because you can throw it on the, in the background through a lot of other stuff than just TV, which when you think about something like Spotify moving into podcasting, you can, can kind of start to see the beginnings of something interesting there. And if you think about TV as just background noise, then you don't really care what's playing, right? Yeah. Which is the argument for, I was, when I was prepping for this podcast, I was looking at some of the uh, services. Did y'all know there's something, I think it's called Dr. Pimple? Dr. Pimple Popper? It's Dr. P- Dr. What Pimple Popper. It is a TV show on TLC, and it got better ratings than How to Get Away with Murder last night, is what I just saw, <laughs> which 
Matt Ball made this in his point on Netflix over the weekend. Like people look at Netflix and they say, oh, everything they have is not like Game of Thrones quality. It's like, well, Dr. Pimple Popper is getting watched by a million people at night. Like sometimes people don't want quality. They just want something in the background or they want something that they can like watch and watch and laugh at really easily. Do not Google Dr. Pimple Popper, by the way. I mean, also like um, I just Googled this, by the way. This is pretty ridiculous. But I mean, there's also like some of these like YouTube stars who would like they just come out with like shorter form content where it's like you know five or ten minute videos and they'll just get like you know tens of millions of views it's crazy well i think that's something interesting about netflix right like if you look at the traditional tv model was 22 22 episodes and now like i used to really like the arrowverse on the cw and i just can't watch anymore because 22 episodes in a season is there's just too much filler in there right and then HBO was like eight to 10 episodes a season and Netflix has gone and done that too. And it makes the TV a lot tighter, but they're really wet to like 30 minutes or an hour-ish per episode. And it is interesting to think like something like YouTube or the next form of video is probably gonna be people experimenting in new ways along the time dimensions, right? Like if I'm on my phone, it's tough to watch something on Netflix because it's 30 minutes and I might only have two minutes while I'm waiting for the bus. And uh, I do think there's something to be said for it kind of evolving the the medium along the time angles or the interactivity angles and all that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's something that it's something that the inter- internet has allowed content creators to do because, like, if you think about the traditional model, it'd be really difficult to schedule programming where it's like you know over the course of an hour you have like six or seven different programs and then to make sure mm-hmm. like to give people that continuity of okay, I'm going to tune in at five twenty five p.m. every day to watch this one show. That's a great. Whereas point. like yep. on Netflix. Or on, on YouTube, you can just be like you can just easily access it, and you don't have to worry about you know timing and whatnot. Yeah, and traditional model, you had to have you had to have breaks for commercials, right? Right. Because you had to put for every thirty minutes, you would have like seven minutes of commercial time or something. So you needed to have a beginning and end around those commercials. Whereas in Netflix, you can just tell the story straight through. So there's so many angles this will evolve along. Just kind of on a side point, when uh, Disney came out with their ESPN Plus product, I mean, I think it was interesting that they talked about how sports is just naturally built for advertising because mm-hmm. you have those natural breaks. Yep. Whereas you don't have that with, you know, other scripted shows. And that's why sports, you know, I, I'm a huge bull on all on all sports teams because A, they're trophy asses. And I think as kind of the world gets richer, these trophy assets are ways to drive uh, soft political power and a lot of other things that I don't think people capture when you're kind of thinking about the overall value of sports teams. But if you look at sports and the sports rights, one of the reasons I think they'll keep shooting through the roof is sports is something that's live. It's naturally built for commercials. And you think about all the data like a Facebook, a Google and Amazon has on you when they're able to give you programmatic ads attached to sports, they're going to make so much money off of these advertisements. They're going to be able to bid through the roof for these things. And uh, yeah, I, I, th- I think that's really interesting. I, I also think like just living becomes a lot cheaper, you know, cost of food, cost of rent, you know, just purchasing power increases, you know, people want to spend their money on, you know, living a better life. And a lot of that, a lot of that relates to entertainment. And so um, like the value of attending a live event should continue to, to go up. Mm-hmm. And, and we've seen that, right? Like ticket prices have been accelerating. I think there was a article in the journal talking about how the one percenters in music are making so much more of ticket sales and i think like the average price of a top tier music act has gone up like 5x over the past 10 or 15 years or something Mm -hmm. which is insane but it speaks to people want 
people want live experiences and they're willing to pay for kind of elite live experiences. So, so Andrew, have you looked at uh, Batra? Liberty Brace? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we, uh, I, I've owned it for quite some time. Yeah, I mean, they've they've got a nice collection of assets there. Yeah, and it speaks, I think Liberty Braves, when you look at them, it speaks to the power of owning a sports team, right? Like Braves, they went and built uh, the, the whole SunTrust area out, and which is in a suburb of Atlanta. And they did it because they got the, they built the stadium and then they built all this prime real estate around the stadium. And you look at the value that's been created from all that prime real estate and it it's really phenomenal. I don't think they... I don't think the market gives them much or any credit for how much value that real estate's going to be worth. You know, they got a, the big elevator company, they're building a class A office building for them. They've got hotels and stuff and it's all going to come online in the next year or so. And I think it's created huge amounts of value and it speaks to all the tangential opportunities owning a sports team provides. Hey, can we go back to the broadcasters? Yep. We mentioned Sinclair earlier. So the broadcasters, their revenue streams have shifted increasingly towards retrans, which is tied to linear TV subs. And when I look at linear TV subs, fat bundle subs have declined, but those declines have been partially offset by growth in MVPD subs. Now it seems with MVPDs, the original pricing was not viable. And I think across the board, they're all being forced to raise prices significantly to reflect the cost of content. And it's not clear to me what happens now that pricing is being raised, what happens to subs. Also, as we've talked about, things are really evolving to this place where linear will really be all about sports and news. And if that's the case, then the networks hold the most important cards with the sports rights. Although, you know, that that may not entirely be the case for Sinclair, who just purchased the regional sports networks from, from Fox. And then leverage, of course, exacerbates any problems that they might run into. But uh, but I'm, I'm largely speaking out of ignorance here. I haven't followed things too closely. What are your guys' thoughts? So like the local broadcasters, the next stars and all that, I, I think it's been a tough question. And I, I posted something on this uh, a while ago. Like, you know, when I look at them, the reason they exist is because the government said, hey, you can't own more than 39% of the, at this point, it's 39% of the broadcasters nationwide, right? So CBS couldn't own 100%. They had to they had to go through a local broadcaster and have the local broadcaster provide the local CBS channel. And, you know, when I look at them today, I, I don't really know the reason for them to exist outside of that legacy reason, right? Like, why can't CBS just strike a deal directly with with YouTube TV or go direct through CBS All Access. Right now, Nexar and these guys are getting a cut of CBS All Access or they're getting a cut of the YouTube TV money. And I'm not really sure why that exists forever. Like, I think the I think Nexar will argue, hey, we provide local news and that's really valuable and maybe, but you know, I think most people, when they turn to their local Fox station, they care a lot more about the, uh, a lot more about the football games or the Fox programming or whatever. And, you know, if charter or YouTube TV or something was providing the was provided the local news, it seems like that would probably work. So I'm not really sure the legacy, the reason for these guys to exist outside of legacy reasons. Now, having said that, I I said this, like I even put a blog post about it. I said this exact thing six months ago. And I think all of the local broadcasters have doubled since then. So (laughs) clearly the market was really, discounting these things. And uh, so far they seem to be doing well, but I worry at some point that's going to change. 
So the point that you raise about you know the value that a national that the, the broadcast networks provide, um, how it relates to their scripted content and also sports rights. I mean, I think I think that's definitely right, and that's why I think that there's a big debate around how much, what percentage of net retrans, like what margin do they get on their on their retrans? How much do they have to, how much do they have mm-hmm. to remit remit back to the networks themselves? And so I think initially that figure was probably north of sixty percent. Now we're I think we're about fifty percent. And the consensus is that that goes down to 40%. Um, but really, who knows kind of where that ends up. Sorry. So when you say 40%, you're referring to the amount that the broadcasters kick back to the network? No, that's, that's the amount that they get to keep. So okay, if, gotcha. a net, if a network um, or if Sinclair gets two bucks a sub, um, then they have to send back $1.20 back to, to the network. And people are thinking this is moving lower because the networks control the sports rights. Right, right, and and so that's why, and that's why you've seen, um, you know, over time, I'm sure, uh, if you follow the space, there's been a ton of M and A, and so a lot of that comes down to kind of like after acquired clauses, where you can step up to a preferential rate um, on the stations that you acquire, but then also when you negotiate deals going forward, you know, you can get you know better negotiating leverage. I guess the other point, Andrew, just on that, that Andrew was mentioning was just on like the local news, and. I know I think it's easy to kind of poo-poo that and be like, you know, who watches local news? But for the vast majority of people, um, you know, I saw I, I did a little research on this before the, the call. I saw something like forty-four percent of people prefer watching TV to get their news versus thirty-four percent online, fourteen percent for radio, and seven percent for print. And another stat that was interesting was sixty-four percent of people watch local news, fifty-three percent watch cable news. And then fifty percent national evening news. So, like, there's definitely local news is still the the largest way that people get um, get information. And just from like a scheduling hours perspective, you know, as as a linear programmer, you have to fill twenty four hours a day, and the local channels provide fifty um, percent of that. So, if you look look at the blocks that that local provides, it's it's uh, it's about half of what they do. So, I I definitely like on local news. I don't. I don't think that it's not valuable. I just like, you know, right now you, you have local Fox, local ABC, local uh, CBS and local NBC, and all of them have the local news channel. And that's where like Nexar and all these guys provide their kind of value add. Right. And I, I do wonder, like, as you go to a YouTube TV model, it, you know, YouTube TV, they can just contract with CBS and then they could run their, they could hire a local news channel in every uh in every city so they could provide the local news themselves then they could go directly to cbs get the cbs programming and then offer their own local news now you don't have 24 hours on a cbs channel but if you're kind of searching by just what you want to watch versus by channel which a lot of these things do now you know i wonder if that cuts into their value and you're seeing like charter charter and altice both have hired a lot of local news teams in the major markets i wonder if that's to give them leverage against the local broadcasters and in the long run if they can just kind of contract directly with the with the broadcasters but again i i don't i don't know it well enough it's just whenever i look at it i I just wonder why these why these guys exist and why they're so darn profitable because they are incredible businesses that generate tons of cash flow and it seems very legacy based to me. So when you look at the run up in their stocks, this seems like a case of expectations just being really bombed out rather than an inflection in their overall health and future prospects. Yeah, 
I think they were trading at really low multiples, which was why I was looking at them. And it was kind of interesting because if you looked at them on like a free cash flow to equity basis, the market was pricing them at like 15 to 20%. And the debt markets were willing to lend to them on like near unlimited amounts at like L plus 300 or something. And obviously debt equity are different, but it's one of the things I've been looking for recently where if the debt markets are like, take all the money you want at 4% and the equity markets are saying, we need 15% from you. It's one of the things I've kind of been looking for as, oh, that that could be kind of interesting. But I think, yeah, I, I think it's been a little bit of, they had really low expectations and there've been a lot of really, really interesting mergers done in the space. You know, Nexstar went and bought Tribune. So they got a lot of additional scale there, which will give them leverage on both negotiating kind of with the networks and negotiating with the cable providers. Sinclair did a, a transaction, did the RSN transaction, which, I mean, I think people are more excited about the financial engineering there than the actual synergies, but that, that looks crazy interesting. So it's been a combo. Oh, and then the other thing, both broadcasters and networks, I've been surprised how well advertising rates have stayed in because you know ratings are declining like crazy but their advertising rates are actually going up and uh i wonder how long that can last well yeah i mean part of, part of that is you know advertising is such a cyclical industry i mean and it's hard to say like mm-hmm. what's going to happen at, in, in the downturn you know you're right this is probably an industry that might might be cut first so andrew the, the example you're you're making before you were saying YouTube could create local broadcast stations in all of the net, all of the cities, right? And then, or just a, a local a local news team, right? Like Charter has, I think it's Charter One here in New York City, where it's their local news team, and then sell that to all of, and then sell that to all of the broadcast networks, and it'll just be, you know, whether you're Fox, CBS, ABC, it'll just be that Charter or that YouTube station you know that's actually not how i was thinking of it but that almost sounds even better than what i was thinking i was thinking they would just get cbs you know say hey we're gonna get the cbs programming and then yeah i guess they would backfill the local any local news spots they could backfill with uh, their own news or they could just get cbs and any blanks they had for local news they could just run reruns of something to fill time but one of those two just to cut out the you know if sinclair is getting I think it's two or three dollars per sub, as you said, and CBS is taking a dollar fifty. That dollar fifty that Sinclair is getting is local news really worth a dollar fifty per head? Right. You know, that's six dollars if it's over four networks. If YouTube could cut that out and just make their own person, that is a that is a lot of money per month. I might be wrong on this, but several years ago I was sitting down with um, the management team from one of the local affiliates and I think they were telling me that in some of the, the um, geographies where they have a duopoly, basically like let's say an ABC and NBC station together, if it's like a smaller market, they might mm-hmm. actually just have one news team and it'll be the same exact content, but you know the logo that you see at the bottom will be different. Yeah, you've got it, you're allowed to do that, but it, it's got to be a really small, small market for the, uh, the FCC to let you consolidate to that level. Like it just, to your point, it kind of makes you question the whole business model. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, people get loyal to the local news team they watch, but if if that local news team was taken off or hired away by, you know, the local charter network, it, it seems like at some point you could start cutting out the Sinclair and everything, and that would save a lot of money on all ends. Yeah. Let me uh, let me spring one on you guys. So do you guys watch Game of Thrones? Um, mostly, yeah. Yeah, I, I watch it religiously. <laughs> I, I do as well. And an interesting thing I, I've kind of been thinking about is, you know, Netflix is so wedded to the the binge model where they release everything at once. 
And I wonder if, you know, that, that works for them right now, but I wonder if it hurts the long-term kind of vi- the long-term kind of buzziness of their shows, because with Game of Thrones, you know, like last Sunday night, we have a watch party, a bunch of friends and I watch it. We spend leading up to the episode. We talk about it after the episode, we discuss it for the full weeks. Whereas like uh, Netflix, they've got, I think their best series is Stranger Things and they just drop it all at once. Right. And if I don't binge watch it that Sunday night, but my friend does, him and I can't talk about it. We don't have that time in between the week to talk about it and really build it up. So I wonder if uh, the the binge model needs to be edited at some point for Netflix, or if there's room for a if the, if there's room in SVOD land for waiting a week, just because it does help you break through into the kind of the public. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I think. You know, the, the time in between an episode is definitely, it helps build anticipation. And it also makes sure, like like you said, everyone is on the same page. I was always surprised that this model actually worked because initially I think, I thought, oh, hey, you know, why don't people just binge everything over the course of a week and then and then just like cancel their subscription for, you know, a few months and then do it again. And I mean, obviously that's not the way that people like to consume content. You know, they'd want to have it, you know, whenever they want. And the pricing is such is is generally low enough um, where people can afford it, and they don't. It's not a huge burden to just keep it every year for every 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 month. But yeah, you know, I think to your point, I wonder um, if they do if it makes sense for them at some point to start experimenting with that just to to help kind of maintain the um, I don't know the excitement around a show. I think it might make sense to do with big marquee shows, but. I guess when I think about Netflix versus HBO, I think of Netflix as more of a content factory and HBO as art. Nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's it's what we were talking about earlier. With, with Netflix, there's a lot of stuff that you can just have on in the background or turn your brain off and enjoy. And there doesn't have to be a huge amount of fanfare and anticipation. Their content breadth is just so wide, they're really a staple for the household. But I can see for select shows like Stranger Things where a sequential release might make sense. Yeah, no, I just think this circles back to like the original point we had, right? Like Netflix is trying to be all of TV and people watch six hours of TV a day. A lot of that viewing is like, it's not Stranger Things or where you're fully invested in watching. A lot of that is like the Dr. Pimple Popper in the background that you just kind of have on in the background. And I've got to watch this show yeah, now. And, and HBO doesn't do that, right? But Netflix... They've got their HBO, you know, they've got their Stranger Things, they've got Sabrina, they've got all their uh, their HBO, like, kind of really popular, really well done stuff. But they've also got the other stuff, too, which people kind of look at that and say, oh, Netflix quality isn't good. But it's not that their quality isn't good. It's that they're trying to make all types of TV. And, you know, to Aaron's point on cancellation, like Netflix, they just put out so much that you can watch one thing and you don't have to cancel. They've always got something else for you. Whereas like HBO or CBS All Access, they put out one thing, you watch the show you like, and maybe they don't have anything else you like. So you cancel it until like the next season of your show comes out. So Netflix has kind of solved that. And that's the benefit of their scale there. I might be making this up, but didn't like Reed Hastings once say like it would be silly to keep 10 away from your your customers that like the whole point of what he's providing is content and like you wouldn't want to hold that back from them them essentially i don't know d- d- does anyone recall any any comments like that that sound that sounds like something you would say having like read a lot of his speeches i can't remember specifically him saying it but that that sounds directionally exactly in line with something he would say 
Now, surprisingly, we haven't talked at all about the real long-term winner in this space, Gaia, with their yoga and conspiracy theory <laughs> shows. Oh my God. Are you, are you guys invested in that? No, no. But I'm kind of thinking that Gaia will be the centerpiece and Netflix will be orbiting around Gaia in a few years. What do you guys think? <laughs> this might be a conversation for another... I don't know. Gaia is a... It's a really interesting company to me because... I mean, their their stuff is legitimate. Some of the stuff is legitimately insane. But you know, if you're going to compete with Netflix, you probably want to do it through niches. So Stars' niches is minorities and women, and you know, CBS has like kind of older people procedural sitcoms, and Gaia just has like raving mad conspiracy theories. But it, it, it's it's interesting. Like they they've hit some scale. I thought I thought Gaia was like yoga. No, they started out as yoga. Yeah, it's yoga, but. They've also branched out into crazier shit. Oh, really? So it started out as yoga streaming, which my question with that was always, don't people just go like on YouTube and get free yoga videos? But now it's like, I think it's called Seeking Truth, where they do like a lot of alternative medicine <laughs> and they do a lot of conspiracy theories and, and, and I know the classic pivot up. But it, <laughs> it, I mean, the NPS, the NPS on this thing is like insane. It, it's Yeah, this is the other thing. When I wrote my post on Gaia a while back, I made this assumption that its churn must be ridiculous, much higher than Netflix. But I probably need to rethink that assumption because if you're subscribing to Gaia, you've got to be really passionate about this stuff, right? So I, I'm looking at their investor presentation, uh, their net promoter score for Gaia Seeking Truth, which is the more like conspiracy series stuff, is 86. And they've got Netflix at 13. So, I mean, the people who love this love this and i i think they told me their their hourly viewing is like borderline netflix level i think i remember their cfo telling me that once dave knows i've, I've followed this company for a while um have you guys looked at um wwe at all wwe is my my biggest mistake i feel like i passed on it at 18 and uh i had gone to wrestlemania and seen how crazy passionate the fans were and you know wwe it there aren't a lot of ways to play sports in the public market yeah. and we can debate if WWE is a sport, but you know, it was live content that was, that was hugely, people are hugely passionate about and I passed on it and I've kicked myself. Actually, that's a lie. I bought it at 18 and I sold it at 19 and I thought I was a hero. And what is it? It's approaching hundred today. I, I think it's spectacular. I, I think the only question is, I, I think there's some capital allocation questions there, but I, I mean, I just think it's spectacular and uh, it'll continue to go up in value. Aaron, you were short this at one point, right? Yeah, I mean, well, that was a while ago. That that was in um, 2010, 2011. I kind of, I, I made money on it at the time. It was shorting it into what I saw was um, like dwindling cash flow, and that they were going to have to cut their dividend, which ended up which ended up working out well because that's what happened. And then I, I haven't been involved since. I've just kind of watched it from uh, the periphery. I'm just I've been amazed at at their ability to to actually get um, like fees from USA. I don't understand how that is a profitable business for USA to, to pay that for them when they're also competing with like the OTC product or uh, over, over the top products, you know? It's live sports, right? Like you look at, if you think about USA, like WWE is the only thing that I know USA has. And if you're a passionate WWE subscriber and uh, WWE follower and your cable company tries to drop USA, you're going to be calling the cable company like crazy to try to get them. And uh 
I mean, I think there's a reason Fox just gave them like a 4X increase in fees for just one of their products because yeah, it's huge. their Friday night thing, it's live sports. Fox can put it on. It's something live. People must tune in. They must watch it on that product. Uh, it, you know, I think it's got all the benefits of live rights going forward. And I hear you on like, but, do, but doesn't, but doesn't that compete with their online product? I mean, no, no, like the online product it has, you can go watch, uh, you know, it's got the, the backlog. So you can go watch old WWE wrestling matches. But I think the thing is, you know, if I watch the NFL on Sunday, that doesn't compete with the NFL, the NFL on CBS on Sunday doesn't compete with the NFL on ESPN on Monday, right? Like those are actually complementary. And the way WWE works is you've got the Monday night product, the Thursday night product, and all of that storyline builds to once a month, the paper, it used to be the pay-per-view. Now it's exclusively on the WWE network. So I actually think it's very synergistic, right? Like the story, you have to watch it on Monday, you have to watch it on Thursday, and it keeps building and building to that network product that they have once a month on Sunday. So I actually think it's- So so, mon- so, so Monday you watch, you, Monday you watch on USA, mm-hmm. Tuesday you watch on, you have to watch it, on USA also, I guess. And then you're saying like once a month, you have to subscribe. Yeah. Basically. So the WWE network product is you get all of the historical WWE stuff. You get some like behind the scene interviews and documentaries and stuff. And then, you know, like WrestleMania, their big pay-per-view, it used to be a pay-per-view. Now, instead what it is, you get it on the WWE network, which I think is like $10 per month per sub. And uh, that's, that's how it works. And I, I think it was brilliant. It got them, D- it got them a DTC product that all of their most passionate fans subscribe to. Yeah, it, it just built on their brand power. I mean, again, can't you just not watch US, USA and just watch it online and catch up right before WrestleMania, essentially? I don't, I don't think so. I mean, like, I don't know if you're a sports fan. Can you not watch the Can you not watch the regular season of the NFL and then watch the NFL playoffs? I mean, you could, but you wouldn't appreciate the storyline as much, and you probably want to watch every week because you're a fan of the game, right? Like for the WWE. Yeah. If you miss, there's four Mondays and four Thursdays in between at each pay-per-view. If you're missing those, yeah, you can just turn in for the pay-per-view. And I know some people do, but they're most passionate fans. They want to watch every moment in the moment so that they can see what's happening. And then they can talk about it with all their friends on Twitter as it happens. They can go to the water cooler and talk about it the next day with their friends. You know, So I, I don't think you could. It's, it's an evolving story that tells the way they've always framed it is it tells the hero's journey, right? You want to tune mm-hmm. in if john cena can win the the belt and you've got to kind of tune in every week to follow your favorite uh people yeah yeah they've done a good job i mean i mean i think the stock price definitely reflects a lot of the fundamental developments no but you know wwe it, it is crazy like i think five years ago i think it, it was a pretty popular short where people looked at it and they said uh what are they doing? Go canceling their pay-per-views. They're investing a ton into the network. But today you look at it and like, I think it's the second or third most popular YouTube channel of all time. Like people, the, it's social media presence is off the charts. And I think it just shows the power of live and sports. And when you, you look at something like that, it, you can feel, you feel pretty good that these guys and all the other sports properties are going to extract a lot of value going forward. Now, as with everything, WWE is priced very richly, so it's a question of how much they can do it going forward. But all these guys are really well positioned for the future. I guess my experience, or like two cents, is I, I think management is like highly promotional here, and so the, the wrestling promoters are highly promotional. <laughs> yeah, it's a shocker. And so, what, like you saw in like 2014, you saw a huge run up in the stock. It went from like 10 bucks to uh, let's see here, like 30, and a lot of that was just baking in. They were going to they were launching the over-the-top product, but then but then they were also doing, they were for like a renewal with USA. And I think like they were 
talking a bigger game than actually what happened. And so that's why the stock went from 30 down to back down to 10 um, in a very short period of time. And then now, uh, like, you know, the stock is now up at 85 bucks. But I think this time they've actually already secured the yeah, USA term. That's right. So they did it. They secured them last year, and I think they got like a four a four x price on them. And I, I'm looking through my old notes. Like, there's a article on Bloomberg, like how how the WWE body slammed Fox or some, or how Fox body slammed rivals to win uh, WWE, and they paid like I mean just insane prices for this. My big worry with it is like, look, Vince McMahon controls it. He controls the super voting stock, and that was that was one of the reasons I kind of avoided it, but. He's been selling his stock to go invest in the XFL, which will launch next year. And I've been wondering how, like, you know, whenever you've got a CEO who's got two major media companies competing with one each other, how distracted he was going to be if he was willing to, like, you know, would he kind of try to boost their profits short term to help him fund the XFL? I'm worried about distraction and stuff there. Um, Good stuff. Yeah, that's a that's a that's an interesting niche name to follow along with Gaia and Chicken Soup for the Soul. Okay, well, we've covered a lot of ground here on video. We can switch over to music or not. Um, it's really up to you. Do you. How do you guys feel about we'll call it here and then maybe we can uh, we can reassess and do a music one if people are interested in a couple months or so. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. Aaron, you okay with that? Yeah, yeah, that works for me. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, thanks, Andrew, for coming on the podcast. No, hey, thanks for having me on. Uh, we'll, we'll stay in touch. And uh, hopefully we can do a follow-up on music and everything. Yeah, we'd love that. All right, cool. Talk to you guys soon.